Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, well, good morning, C4. So glad that you're here this morning. Happy March break, depending on who you are or not so much. Uh, we're so glad they're joining us. Want to say hi to many of you watching and listening online. Uh, for all of you in Florida, we love you. We'll talk to you later. Uh, we'll see you online. We're just, again, so glad that you're here this morning. And as Joanna just said, we're in a series out of the book of Haggai. So we've got a Bible, especially a paper one. Take a moment to try finding it. If it's electronic, you'll be there in 2.2 seconds. And that would be great. Uh, it's interesting as we're walking through this series, there's a word that came to me this week as I was reflecting on speaking this morning, and it's the word margin. I think in our culture, we have very little margin, very little margin in our relationships, very little margin in our finances, very little margin in our, our sort of mental capacity. We, we are just inundated with either too much information or too fast or too much debt. And we all know that when margin is given in a situation, there's that ability to breathe. There's that ability just to rest. There's the ability not to worry, not to be consumed by debt or panic or an anxiety. Margin creates space to live. Now that word is the word I want to burn in your mind this morning because I think that is the word that God is giving to us actually in this season. See, I'd never made the connection before, but when God gives promises to his people, he gives margin for them in their lives actually to rest and live. Margin is critical especially in what we're talking about this morning. This is week three in our mini-series called Promises out of the Book of Haggai. Now, let me repeat what I've done the last two weeks. I only preached out of the Book of Haggai two or three years ago. I rarely, if ever, go back to the book I just went through. But as I've shared with you over the last two weeks, I felt over 12 months ago so unbelievably compelled to come back to this book and was unsure why. But it is so obvious now where we are as a church. Let me say what I said last week. Why Haggai? Because this is the story of God's people walking in the middle of promises which have been partially fulfilled, partially experienced, yet not fully. See, we as a church have been given multiple promises, and we are not at the beginning of the journey, and we are not at the end of the journey. This is a series about how do you live in the middle while the promises of God, specifically to our church, are being experienced, and yet there's so much work to be done. Why the book of Haggai? Because in this book, God speaks into the middle of the people's journey. He sets their priorities right again. He reminds his people of his faithfulness. He inspires them to keep going. And by multiple mini promises, he actually gives them margin for faith, life, and rest. Why Haggai, and specifically, why for C4 in this season? Because the promises we find in the book of Haggai in those times are the promises we need to hear, we need to believe, we need to claim for C4 in this season. Like I've shared for the last two weeks, this is a tailor-made series for this season because we are celebrating what God has done among us uniquely in the last three and a half years, and yet we know there is so much happening at this moment and so much more that is about to to take place in this church, in this region, and in this world. 
Here's where we land in the story this morning. We'll be in uh, Haggai 2, verse 10. The last words of God through the mouth of his prophet Haggai had inspired, like we found out last week, had motivated, called the people to keep working and following God in one task. God had said to the people in this moment, I want you to do only one thing, not five things, not 20 things, one thing. I, God, have asked you to rebuild my temple. The story of Haggai, as we found out, begins actually with Ezra and Nehemiah, and 20 years later, Haggai's on the scene. Now the promise was being lived out. The temple was being worked on again. His words had become the foundation and the drive to keep going. Do you remember where we ended last week? Do you recall God's last mini promise he gave the people? It reads like this in Haggai 2.8. God said, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, declares the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. See, God had come to his people and said, rebuild my temple. And he had promised so many things so they would not get stuck in the middle and they would keep going. Why? Because God actually wanted his people to experience the promise of life, the promise of peace. God wanted to restore temple worship. God wanted to inspire them to see the promises given fulfilled. Now, in a short period of months, God gave multiple promises to his people to accomplish this one task. The very first thing that God said in the book of Haggai is this, I am with you. And like we found out, when God says, I'm with you, it's not like he walks in the room, crosses his hands and says, get on with it, I'm with you. No, when God says, I am with you, he says, I will guide you, I will protect you, I will empower you, I will resource you. When I walk in the room and I say, I'm with you, it is God saying, I am for you. Is there anything greater in all of the universe than God coming to you and saying, I am for you? What do you think? I am with you. Then God says, not only am I with you as you rebuild the temple, then he said, I will continue to send my Holy Spirit upon you. Then he said this next, you don't need to fear anymore. I am with you. And then he said these next things, I will give you all the resources you need to accomplish this task. God is generous. God is the great margin creator. Now God at this moment chooses once again to give another mini promise which would provide the hope, inspiration, and momentum and margin margin needed to keep going in this point of the middle. Now, the question you should ask, and I did this week, is why does God need to speak again to his people? It's simple. God knows that vision leaks. God knows that work gives out. God knows that distraction becomes central and lies become perceived truth in his community all the time. So God chooses to speak a third time to see his promise fully experienced by his people. So here's where we land in the story. It's been two months since God spoke through Haggai in October. And so we need to ask, has a new problem come up? Has something emerged among the people that's discouraging them or stopping the work just in eight weeks? God has already addressed the issue of the massive job. God has addressed all the religious starts and stops. He's addressed the lie that this temple, though smaller, would be lesser than Solomon's temple. Actually, he said, what I'm going to do in this generation is much more significant than I did during Solomon's time. So we ask, well, what's going on now with the people of God? What could cause the people of God not to obey and keep going in the middle of the promise given and yet not fully fulfilled? 
Are there new problems? No. No new problem has emerged, but there are things that God has decided not to address until this very moment. Actually, there are two lies that are floating in the air that people are starting to believe or have already begun to believe that could threaten, derail the ongoing and the coming work of God. So you should ask, well, John, what are the lies? Well, like I said, there's two of them. The first was this. Listen closely this morning. I know it's March break and it's cold, but this is important. The first was this misunderstanding that you are made good with God because of your relationship with other people who walk with God or being around the things of God. This is significant. In other words, people started believing that I am made holy, I am made righteous, I am made okay with God when I hang around people who love him a lot and I'm around religious things like, oh right, the temple that's being rebuilt. Now, the other lie is more insidious. This was the lie that they were believing. What you do in your private life, what you do in your thought life, what you do in your motives will never affect your standing before God and what you bring to God. In other words, since grace and since we're God's people and since we're Jews and since we're elected, you can bring anything you want to God, no matter how you act during the week, and he's going to be just fine with what you offer. And God comes and says at this moment, no, Both of those things are untrue. Now, I want you to notice this, and I want you to see how specific God is. Haggai 2.10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. So on December 18th, 520 B.C., do you see in God's calendar when he decides to show up, he's very specific. God shows up and he speaks. Only three and a half months before he spoke for the first time, now only two months after his last charge, Haggai walks into the exact same place, stands on the original foundation of the temple, and speaks the word of God among all the people. God in this moment wants to speak so he can encourage the people to grab the people's attention to keep going in this critical moment. So much so, and I found this out again as I was reviewing, so much so that two weeks earlier, God sends Zechariah the prophet. So if you read Zechariah and Haggai, those books together, two weeks at the beginning of December, Zechariah starts preaching. Now Haggai shows up. God thinks these lies in this moment is so critical. Two prophets show up and begin to preach the exact same message. So this is where it begins. He begins to address these lies, to work them out. He captures the people's attention. Haggai's time is coming to an end. Zechariah's time is beginning. He is inspired and asked by God to address something that he's already addressed. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, he is asked by God to go back to chapter 1. He's asked once again to point out the sin they have already struggled and dealt with. The message in this moment, I want, to hear this, hear, I want you to hear this this morning, is not to bring people down or to destroy people or put some religious sort of weight on them. No, no. What he wants to do is he wants to remind them of what they've just left, even though it was only three and a half months ago, and he wants to paint a more beautiful picture of what is to come. He says, look, if you want to keep walking with me, if you don't want to get stuck in the middle, I want to remind you again of what you've just left and why you should never go back to it again. Verse 11, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. Now, you could read that and go, okay, move on. No, no, this is very significant. 
This is the first time in the book of Haggai where Haggai specifically addressed the priests. So far, we have seen that prophets bring the word of God, the elders bring the wisdom of God, the leaders govern the people of God, the high priest has been addressed, but never have the pastors and theologians of the day, the ones who are responsible to interpret Torah, the ones who are responsible to interpret the written word of God with that authority. They've never been addressed. So Haggai is now standing on the foundation of the temple And he says, as the whole nation gathers, all you pastors and theologians of the day, stand up. God has a question for you. As a pastor, I'd get really nervous at that moment. And he says this, if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches bread or stew or wine or olive oil or other foods, does it become consecrated? And the priests answered, it seems in unison, no. Now, when I preached this two or three years ago, I said, is anyone confused? Because I was unbelievably confused. Are they grocery shopping? And if they're grocery shopping, what's going on? And why are they carrying meat in their jacket? That's really gross. And why is the meat in their jacket touching olive oil? And what does stew have to do with wine? And I'm really confused. And then you say it has to do with being holy. This sounds gross, unsanitary, and confusing. We need to get some meat inspectors in and shut it all down. No, this is not, listen, this is what's happening. This is talking about meat that is being carried to the temple grounds where Haggai is speaking and to be given as a sacrifice to God. So what Haggai is addressing is this. When you are bringing your sacrifice to God, here's the question. When that thing that has been dedicated to God, which is holy, can it, when it touches other things, also make them holy? So in other words, if I'm around God, or if I'm around the people of God, or around the things of God, am I going to be made okay? Is it spiritual osmosis? Am I in good standing with God because of those I have relationship with? The priests all stand and in unison say, no, never Not on your life. You are never made okay with God by being near God, around or involved with the things of God. Holiness, good standing, relationship with God is never something you catch. Now this is very, very offensive. And let me tell you why. Because hundreds of millions of people at this moment believe this. But I lit candles at church. I went to church at Christmas and Easter. I pray five times a day. I give to the poor. I know some, my grandmother's a great praying person, so since she loves God, my whole family's covered. This insidious lie that we are made right by being in proximity, stalking God through others, is not true. So Haggai asks another question to the priest. He, he does the reverse. Well, then, can I be made unholy if I'm around things that are sinful? Now, he uses a very common idea to the Jewish mind, a very foreign idea for us. So, then Haggai said, if a person is defiled by contact with a dead body and touches one of these things, do they become defiled? And yes, the priest said, it becomes defiled. So, the second question is, can you become unclean? Can you be ritually defiled? Can, can sin spread in the opposite way? Is it 
passed on by contact. Now, he uses the idea of a dead body. In the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, then what happened was you were not allowed to participate in Passover, and you were removed for a certain amount of days from corporate worship. So you wouldn't be allowed to come to church because this was a symbol of of sin. And so you had to go through a bunch of ritual. So here's what happens. He says, well, if the opposite is true, does sin spread like a virus? And the answer is, Oh, yes. If you are in contact with sin, you will become defiled. If you're in contact with holiness, you will not become holy. I love how another person put it. It just summarizes it so well. If you touch something with a dirty hand, you'll leave a dirty mark. But if you touch something with a clean hand, you will never leave a clean mark. In other words, sin mars and sin marks and sin is dirty and sin is passed so quickly and holiness isn't at all. See, this is what God is trying to address. He brings the whole conversation home to his people. Remember, he's talking to people that are in relationship with him. In verse 14, God says through Haggai these words, So it is with my people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, it is defiled. So God says, can you imagine God coming to C4 and saying this? Just so you know, I view you, though you're my children, as defiled people, and everything you touched is defiled too. Whether you know it or not, believe it or not, I know it because I see your heart. All you do, listen to this, all you bring to me is not clean. Let me put it in our modern vernacular. All your singing in church, nope. All your giving, nope. All your sacrifices, all your reading of your Bible, all your devotions, all your connect groups, all, all your communion taking, nope. It's not acceptable to me because you are unclean and since you're unclean, everything you touch is unclean, so everything you bring to me is unclean. Can you imagine the conversation? So God comes and, re- and, and the rebuke of God assumes one thing, a wrong attitude towards the Lord. See, we've been learning that God's people in this time were more interested in their own comfort than serving and obeying God. Their moral and religious defilement affected their lives, the work of their hands, thus affecting everything they brought to God. So God, through Haggai, challenges and breaks apart the notion that what we do in our life with God and what we do with others is different than our worship. The worship of God is center, foundation, and roof over our lives. All we do is God's. All we own is God's. All we do is either worship or unworship to God. And for Haggai's time, the people, here's the connection so you get this. What God is saying is, because you decided not to rebuild my temple, and instead you decided that your houses were more important than my house, every time you would bring something to me at the temple, it was unacceptable, because truly at the end of the day, your life and your house is more important than my life and my house. One person wrote it vividly like this, and it brings it home very, very well. He says, the skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and everything else was contaminated by it. Haggai 1-2. Remember the beginning three and a half months earlier? These people say, this is what God says, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord, the first time, came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while my house remains in a ruin? Haggai vividly describes... In chapter 1, the problem. Now, here's what's happened. Since chapter 1, the people of God have repented and they've started to move forward. 
God is not saying he still views them as defiled. What he's starting to say is, I want you to remember what it was like when you weren't obeying me. So verse 15 is critical. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Like on this December date, we're having this conversation. Consider how things were before one stone was laid upon another in the Lord's temple. So before Haggai says, before we keep working, before we keep seeing the promises of God fulfilled among us, before the glory of this house gets greater, before we continue to be inspired, as we are now obeying God, I want everyone to stop and listen. What was it like three and a half months ago when you did not consider and you did not obey? What was the situation among us as the people of God? They would have known there was drought. There was peace, none. It was dangerous. It was bad. In other words, God is saying, I want you to consider what it was like so you never go back to that Egypt ever again. I want you to see the direct connection between your conduct and your experiences before Haggai came. I want you to know your recent history. I don't want you to run from it. I don't want you to hide from it. I don't want you to gloss it over. I want you to own it. I want you to own it. Why? Because I want you never, ever to squander what has happened. And I do not want you to miss the greater glory that I've promised this house. Because if you go back, my glory will not come. What do you want, O people of God? Then he reviews in verse 16 what happened in early history. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. When anyone went to the wine vat to draw out 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. You wouldn't repent. You wouldn't come back to the giver of all good gifts. Don't forget how things just were a few weeks ago and a few months ago. Amos the prophet, in his time, wrote very similar things. Many times God says, Through him I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devour your fig and olive trees, yet you wouldn't return to me, declares the Lord. See, God says this morning, Remember. Do you really remember? Have you made the connection that A plus B in this case really does equal C? That every single time before Haggai came and you actually between the time of Nehemiah and Haggai for 18 to 20 years, you would bring some sacrifices to me and you would sing to me. But every time you did it, you did it in the ruins of the temple. The promise that you had committed to me was the very place you were bringing sacrifices. It is hypocrisy on a level that you are so blind to. You cannot live a divided life between God and the world. You cannot, let me put it again in our vernacular, you can't come to church on Sunday and worship and raise your hands and then on Monday forward you live your life a very different way. Is there grace? That's not even the conversation, of course. Are these people in relationship with God? Of course they are. These are the elected people of God. But God is saying to his people, have I not chosen you from all the other nations? Have I not made you my children? This is about my honor, and this is about my glory, and this is about my worship, but it's also about your blessing. It's about your joy. It's about worship. It's about margin. It's about obedience. Actually, I promised you peace. I'm not just Savior. Do you not know who I am? I am Lord. And then God says it. From this day on, verse 18, from, from like this moment, 
on the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. When God says something three times, you pay attention. One, you should pay three. Give careful thought. I, God is saying, I don't want any one of you to be stuck in the middle. I don't want you to miss the grand work that I'm about to do. There is a greater time, a more beautiful time, a more significant time, and since I am doing this, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to be very clear about what things were like, so you never have to repeat it again. But what I love is this. God doesn't say, go sit in your past and swim in it. God reminds them graphically. And then he says, now, have you done it? Hugs all around, kids. Let's go forward. And then he says it. On December 18th, 520 BC, I have now decided to do this thing. Do you know how significant it is? When heaven says the door is open, the door is open. And God says at this moment, on this date, I've decided, as you are now, and this is what's happening in the story, as more of the foundation is being dedicated and laid, as new sections of the temple are being dedicated, rededicated and built, because the people are now obeying, he says this in verse 19, Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, And the olive tree have not borne fruit. And then he gives them this promise. From this day on, I will bless you. Like there is nothing more amazing than God saying, I've decided to do this now. God's promise presumes something though. Did you see the pattern? When people of God are given a task and the people of God say no to the task, the spirit is grieved. But when people hear the word of God, listen to the word of God, are open to the word of God, and celebrate what God is doing, and they evidence it by obedience and repentance, then God's blessing comes. And so God says, now you have heard, now you have obeyed, now you are rebuilding my temple. I just want to say as a good dad, here's what I say, look around. He said, at this moment, look around. How's the pomegranate doing? Not so good. Olive trees. Not a great harvest, but at this moment, like right now, I'm going to change all of that. Watch me do it. Now, if you read Zechariah alongside Haggai, Zechariah goes farther. And I just want to read Zechariah 8 to you. Because this is how Zechariah describes, I will bless you. And it matters, actually, for where we are as a church. This is what Zechariah 8, 9 reads like. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, hear these words. This is to the same people. Let your hands be strong so the temple may be built. This was also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, ready? Here it is. Before the time of Haggai, there was no wages for people or hire for animals. No money. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies. Since I, God, had turned everyone against their neighbor. And then I love this, verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. And then here's the description. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops. The heaven will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you. You will be a blessing. Do not be afraid. Let your hands be strong to work. 
Now, I want you to see the amazing connection. God says on December 18th, I have now decided to end the drought. You have obeyed me. You're working in the temple. My spirit's about to come. In the middle, you've been faithful. Now, watch me act in ways that are beyond your ability. And then look what Zachariah says. As God has decided to change the correction and destiny of the people, he says, not only will I bless you, but at the end of Zechariah, he says, and you now will become a blessing for everyone else. When God shows up and moves in power and chooses to bless a community, that community will be so radically changed, they will bless all the other nations around them. Now, this is very significant for us at C4. And I want you to listen closely. That's where we're going to end today in, in Haggai. Why does this matter to us? What is God, again, saying to us as a community, even on March break? Here it is. Number one, let me say it again, because I, I have to follow the script. C4, give careful thought. There's no judgment here. Just everyone stop and really think. We as a church are in the middle, and we're walking out in the given promises of God. And God comes to us at this moment. For all of you watching and listening online, this is as much for you. Stop, he says, and don't go back very far. Look at your recent history. Look at the last four or five years. Look at what things were like before. Look at the church and many of our personal lives when sinful habits and pain and history was more profound than what I wanted to do. The description of many of our lives, and I can say this with authority because I interviewed hundreds of you, looks like this. The vine and fig tree, the pomegranate and olive tree did not bear fruit. You were there, you were present, you loved God, but drought was the description. God comes and says, think about the time when money and talent and your priorities were not about God or his temple or what God's doing in this church or in this region, when secret sin and hiddenness was right across this whole church, when other agendas blocked out the heart and call of God. Then God says to us in this moment, and I say this again, God says to us, do not go back. Do not go back for your sake because that Egypt is terrible. But it's deeper than that. God says to us on this moment in March, don't go back for the whole community's sake. Or let me put it in our vernacular. Do not give up the renewal many of you have experienced. Do not give up the peace, the freedom, the work that's already being done. Oh, we're not saying new work doesn't need to be done. And we're not saying you can't have boring moments in your Christian walk. Boringness is normal. What we're saying though is, has God done something in the last three to five years in your life that is a significant step forward? Do not, do not, do not give it up. It affects you. It affects your family. It affects this whole church. Or to put it in, hey guys, don't go back now at this moment as we're seeing more than we've ever seen and go back to your paneled house and make your house or the things you love more significant than what God is doing now. Now is the time to run from the paneled house more than we ever have before. Give careful thought, C4, because God says to us, I have done something here that I have not done in many other churches. Do not squander the gift I have given and I'm giving. And then he says this, see, for I actually have given you a task. It's very interesting. In the time of Haggai, they were the people of God, and all people of God in every generation are called to be faithful. That transcends culture and assignment, no doubt about it. 
But in that time, Haggai and his people, Nehemiah's people, Ezra's people, had been called to do one task. Not three, not nine, not twelve. One thing. He said one thing. I have come and I have asked you to rebuild my temple. And my promise to you, he said, was when that temple was rebuilt, my glory would come in a greater way than it ever did in Solomon's time, and you would actually touch the nations. Read the end of Zechariah 8. It actually says so profoundly that it will happen where God's presence would so mark that temple that 10 people would grab the hem of one Jew and say, we must come to you and with you because we have heard the living God is truly among you. And it says that the nations would be drawn back to the true living God because of their obedience to this one task. See, God's heart wasn't just for his kids. God's heart was for the world. And he said, if you do this, the nations get to meet me again. And he said, so come and hear this really profound act. See what I'm about to do. And they did it. And it happened. Let me say this. See, four as is within their day, so now in our day, with this vast kingdom around the world, the kingdom come, Jesus is doing things around the world we've never seen in Christian history. We have been given, as a church, one task. Every church has the same mission. Every church is called to be faithful, Bible-oriented, filled with the Spirit, loving, yes, but we have been commissioned, and we are called, and we have been invited into the grand project to build a church and to continue to become a church, a regional church of 10,000 meeting the emotional, mental, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. This is the task God has given us. This is a heaven-breathed ask. This is a heaven-breathed task. And God has come to us and says in this moment, as you're walking in the middle, I just want to remind all of you, C4, I have decided this. I have ordained this. This is from me. And I am asking you to do this because when you keep doing this, the nations will be drawn to me. And like we found out last week, the glory in this season will be greater than the glory we have seen, not seen in the past. We are now not here today gathering to celebrate it, nor are we beginning it. We're in the middle. But God says, review your history. Don't go back. And he reminds us in the middle, no, no, no. This is my idea for this church in this season. And then this is what he says. Because he always does this. See, for I will bless you. I will bless you. That doesn't mean we're all suddenly getting jets and we're all getting BMW. No, 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 no. What does blessing mean? See, this is so important that we hear this mini promise so we keep walking in the right direction. What happened in Haggai's day? God says now there's repentance and faith and now there's obedience to actually doing the task I have given you specifically. Now I will bless you. Now you've embraced the task of rebuilding the temple. I will now continue to do the greater thing among you. And it's within that moment, on that day, God says in my heaven-given calendar, that I now give this next promise. I will bless you. I will supply my spirit. I'll provide the leaders that are needed. I'll provide the volunteers. I'll provide the gifts. I'll provide the character. I'll provide the money. I'll provide the resources. Why? So you live in better paneled homes? No. I'm going to do all this so you can accomplish the task. God's blessing is directly connected, and the lines are drawn around the task he has given. This is 
not some health and wealth thing where I'm standing and saying, now, if we all obey, you're all going to be blessed. And so, no, no. God says, I will bless you as a community so you can do the task I've assigned you. I will never, God says, send you out without everything you will need. So the same today. God says in the middle, see, for I'm with you, and I will bless you for this task that I have laid before you. Don't fear the size of the task. Don't fear the number of the task. Don't feel your, fear your role or whatever it is within my move. Don't fear. I will bless. What I do and what I continue to do, when it goes beyond the ability of this church, you will actually know that I am doing it. And my presence and my power and my resources will actually accomplish this thing, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So God says again as we gather together, C4, celebrate. C4, do not fear. C4, keep working. C4, keep praying. C4, grow in expectancy. C4, keep giving generously. C4, keep volunteering. C4, keep witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. C4, keep repenting. C4, keep loving. C4, allow yourself to be loved. Stay the course. Walk in the middle. Because God would say to us, I want you to see this promised land. I want you to have life as a church. I want you to have peace as a church. And I will give what I need so you can keep doing this. Or out of the words of Zechariah, be strong, keep building, and watch me do something that I have never done in your history. The way you keep walking in the middle is you do not go back to what you've been saved from. The way we keep walking in the middle is we continue to place ourselves before God and say, Lord, you have given us this task. Help us to grow in faith to accept it. And then the way we keep going in the middle is we remind ourselves that God actually has everything in his hands and he is going to provide what is needed at the critical moments all through this journey. Can anyone say amen to that? Yeah, it is, it is what he is going to do. It's the way we keep going. So could we do this together, even in this moment? Could we stand together as we're going to respond in song? But what I want to do is I want to pray Zechariah 8 over our church. Because I think it's such a, a profound thing. And as you've heard over the months and years, you, again, let me just say it. We, as a leadership We as a community, we do not believe in any way, shape, or form that we are a more significant or better church than anyone. We are just so convinced about God's calling for us. And so let me pray this. And and if you could do this, if you're willing, if you're able. In the Bible, when people approached God, they postured themselves in all different ways. They would stand, they would sit. Sometimes they'd cover their faces, they'd cover their heads. But in this case, if you're only willing, would you at least just, uh, just put out your hands like this, saying, Lord, I am open. If you're Pentecostal, you're up. If you're Baptist, you're down here. It's okay. God sees it all. Uh, but would you, just, would you just say, I am open, O Lord. We together as a community are saying we are open for your blessing. We're open for what you're going to do. So let me just pray this. O God of heaven and earth, as you have assigned a great task for us in the middle, help us to be faithful. And as we have postured ourselves before you, Lord, here's what I just pray out of your ancient scriptures. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong, see for, so the temple may be built. This is what was said through the prophets who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. 
Before that time, there was no wages for the people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people called C4 as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. C4, hear the word of God. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to you, C4, the people. Just as you, C4, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will become a blessing. So do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. And Lord, the last thing I pray among my friends this morning is this, and it's so important. At the end of Zechariah 8, like I mentioned, it says that your presence came in the church or in that temple so profoundly for a period of time that it says that the nations and cities were so enthralled by the presence of God that 10 people who did not know the God of Israel grabbed the hem of one Jew and said, we must come because we have heard God is among you. So Lord, we pray this. Oh God of heaven and earth, send your spirit in this church and may you choose. We know you're here We know you're always here. We know we're baptized in the Spirit. But would you palpably choose for a season to grow your presence more and more and more where 10 people would grab the hem of each person in this church and say, we must come for we have heard that the God of heaven and earth is really among you. Is it true he's there? May this take place. May again, like, let me use an old English word. Oh God, befuddle our friends and neighbors. Cause extreme, extreme confusion because people really encounter God and people are changed. We welcome God the Father's will. We welcome the work of Jesus the Son. We continually welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.